0: Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick in for Julia Chatterley, who hopefully is getting some rest as we get used to this time change. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. COVID concerns. Italy heads into a new lockdown and cases climb in Hong Kong. Bitcoin bounce. It soars past $60,000 only to sell off sharply. And nomination time. After a year of radical upheaval, the movie industry prepares for the Oscars. It's Monday, let's make a move. Welcome to First Boob. We've got plenty ahead on the show today, including signs that it may be too early to declare victory against the coronavirus. A new Hong Kong cluster and tighter restrictions in Italy are raising concerns, and we're going to bring you all of the details shortly. First, let's take a look at the markets. U.S. stocks are set for a higher open after a record close Friday for the S&P 500 and the Dow. Optimism about economic recovery fueling last week's rally. This week, all eyes will be on the U.S. Central Bank. The Federal Reserve begins a critical two-day meeting on Tuesday. The prospect of rising inflation has pushed bond yields to levels not seen in many months. Investors will listen out for clues to how the Fed sees the recovery shaping up and any tweaks to its timeline for rate hikes. Italy is entering a new phase of tighter coronavirus restrictions. Much of the country is under new measures from today with a national lockdown set for Easter as cases spike again. Melissa Bell is live for us in Rome. Melissa, this is certainly not the turn uh, the folks in Italy wanted to see.
1: That's right. And the turn that no one could have imagined just over a year ago when Italy first entered lockdown, Alison becoming the first Western democracy to do so, that a year on this is what would be happening. And of course it is once again, because throughout this pandemic, Europe's been just a few weeks ahead of the United States, a warning really to what might happen there next. What we've seen these last few weeks after falling cases at the turn of the year arise as a result of those new variants and specifically Alison, the one first identified in the United Kingdom. They've been spreading faster. We now know that it is potentially uh, more dangerous than the others. Uh, ICUs are filling up across Europe once again. And this is vaccination campaigns are simply not moving fast enough to have a compensating effect on that. Here in Italy, it is just over 3% of the population that has been fully vaccinated. The government's now announced a fresh strategy from last Saturday. And listen to this. Its um, its target is so ambitious that what it's hoping to do is get 500,000 injections delivered every day. Italians have put a general in front of this uh, task force to try and get this up and running, uh, hoping that the army will be able to do what civilians have failed to so far. That would allow them, they say, to vaccinate 80 percent of Italy's population by September. But again, 500,000 injections every day. We're a very long way from that right now.
0: Melissa, as Italy goes back into lockdown, what are the lessons that other countries can learn about maybe where Italy went wrong?
1: Well, I think it's important to understand that, in a sense, what's changed between this lockdown and the last one, not only are the streets of Rome very different than they were just over a year ago, because although the rules are the same, Alison, people, thanks to masks, uh, thanks to testing, thanks also to the fact that they're no longer as afraid of the unknown as they were a year ago, although the rules are the same, many more people are going out to work. And I think you can apply that uh, comparison as well to the system as a whole. Last year, the country locked down because ICUs were overburdened. This time, the regions that have locked down just over half of all of Italy's regions, it is because they've hit a particular target of incidence rate. So when a region gets to 250 positive people per 100,000, it goes into red and locks down entirely as the region around Rome has. And that's because we now know how COVID-19 works. We don't wait for the ICUs to become overburdened. We understand that at some point you have to take measures that are unpopular, that are harmful to the economy because you can be sure of the fact that in the next two to three weeks, the ICUs will become overburdened as a result of, fasting, of fast rising uh, rates of uh, incidence of infection. So I think those are some of the lessons that have been learned. In a sense, it feels like we're back to where we were, but in other ways, we're not because we now know how this virus functions and we know how to stop it before a country's healthcare system collapses, Allison.
0: And Dr. Anthony Fauci has warned that if the U.S. lifts restrictions too early, it could risk going the way. Of Italy, Yet another uh, lesson there. Melissa Bell, thanks so much. In Hong Kong, officials taking action over what could be a fifth wave of COVID-19. Eleven residential buildings have been locked down and the people in them given compulsory tests. Will Ripley reports.
2: Hong Kong is announcing plans to open more vaccination centers and make vaccines available for more people. Anyone over the age of 30 starting on Tuesday. This as the city battles a new spike in cases right here in the heart of Hong Kong. As Hong Kong fights to fend off a possible fifth wave of COVID-19, nowhere is immune. This weekend, hundreds of healthcare care workers and police sealed off several upscale neighborhoods, ordering thousands to line up for testing and lockdown. To wait for results it was a little overwhelming we didn't know what to expect suddenly the building was taped up and there were a lot of cops and uh, there was a medical crew that walked in in hazmat suits so it was uh, all very sudden hong kong began ambush style lockdowns in late january targeting clusters in densely populated lower income areas these are the first to hit the high rent districts full of expats foreign residents finding themselves on the front line of hong kong's latest outbreak
0: granted that we've had COVID for about a year and suddenly this comes up we were a bit surprised but i guess these measures need to be taken to avoid a next wave outbreak
2: the hundreds of people who live in these buildings and others in the area won't be allowed to leave until all of this testing is complete they have to stay in their homes health authorities say this latest super spreader event started here at this popular fitness center raising questions about safety just weeks after Hong Kong allowed gyms to reopen. More than 100 cases are linked to this single gym. The cluster has closed schools, offices, and forced hundreds into government quarantine centers, locked down for 14 days, including single mom Jen Berman.
3: And The most stressful thing is just the uncertainty, and it, it was the not knowing. It's getting that phone call. My main concern was my son. Um, it was really just not knowing if he was going to have to quarantine with me what the results were going to be. um, Because if I turned out to be positive, it means that my son would have to quarantine and go through this process too. And obviously as a mom, it's your worst nightmare for them to have to go through something like this.
2: Children may have a harder time coping with quarantine, mental health experts say. And young children in particular really thrive
4: on safety, security, and consistency. And so when their whole world is kind of turned upside down, that can be really disruptive. And and as, as I mentioned, it can be quite traumatic.
2: Hong Kong has one of the world's harshest quarantine policies, up to three weeks for incoming travelers, two weeks for anyone in close contact with the infected. The city is just beginning COVID-19 vaccinations. Most may have to wait months before they can get a shot, potentially meaning more outbreaks, more lockdowns, more damage to the already devastated local economy, just as many hoped life was finally getting back to normal. Hong Kong health officials say if case numbers start to go down, they'll consider easing restrictions on public gatherings and businesses. But they say if the numbers stay where they're at or continue to go up, they might impose more restrictions on this city. Will Ripley, CNN, Hong Kong.
0: Now to Brazil, where a frightening surge in COVID-19 cases is overwhelming the country's health care system. ICUs across Brazil now reaching near capacity. Matt Rivers is live for us in Sao Paulo. Matt, what's the latest?
5: Yeah, Allison. I think that if you told health officials here in Brazil that they could be in Italy right now or in Hong Kong and look at those numbers in any of those places, they would be thrilled. Because the frank way to put it is that what is happening in Brazil right now is the worst situation of any major country in the entire world, uh, including death rates, including case numbers. Uh, what is happening here in Brazil, this country is going through the worst days of its pandemic so far. Pamela Ravipi can only look at the photos of her grandmother. She says watching the videos is too painful. The world didn't deserve my grandma, she says. She was too good. Admitted March 3rd with COVID at this small hospital outside Sao Paulo, she died just two days later, the facility quickly overrun by a new wave of COVID-19.
0: A gente pensa naquela família que...
5: This doctor who works there says we think about the families that are suffering and we can't sleep. It is unbelievable. This hospital just doesn't have the facilities to care for those who are really sick. Those patients would usually get transferred somewhere else, but right now there's nowhere else to go. So instead of getting transferred, they're dying. In just five days last week, 12 patients died waiting for an open bed somewhere else, according to hospital officials. Pamela's grandmother was one of them. She thinks that she would have survived if treated in an ICU. But right now, access to those facilities is nearly impossible. Albert Einstein Hospital is one of Brazil's best, but here too, the rooms are full. They are scrambling to build more ICU beds because the patients just keep coming.
3: It's the most busy time we have ever been in this last year.
5: We first saw hints of this about six weeks ago, when we reported from Manaus, a city in Brazil's Amazon Rainforest. Hospitals there were overwhelmed amidst a new outbreak, and the city was forced to build so-called vertical graves. And from then to now, that chaos has spread nationwide. In 22 of 26 Brazilian states... ICU capacity is at or above 80%, government data shows. In Sao Paulo, it's 90% and climbing. And when you run out of beds, doctors tell us, people die.
3: The coffin is closed, so the family doesn't have the opportunity to say goodbye.
5: The number of such coffins is surging at the Sao Paulo Public Cemetery. From above, you can see the thousands of newly dug graves the number of burials, like the one going on behind me, have been staggering recently. Since the pandemic began, the three single days where Sao Paulo has recorded the most coronavirus deaths have come in just the last week. Experts say the causes of the new surge are myriad. A more transmissible variant, few vaccines, relaxed lockdowns, and government mismanagement all playing varying roles. But no matter the cause, these are the effects. Outside this public hospital, every day between 3 and 5 p.m., family members of COVID patients inside wait to hear their names. They go in to get news on conditions. And often, it's not good. And then comes the grief and the tears wrought from a pandemic that just won't end. (laughs) when you're talking about vaccines here in brazil you are talking about a program that is woefully lacking so far less than 10 million doses uh less than 10 million people rather have received a single dose of vaccine less than two percent of the population here has been fully vaccinated there remains little planning in terms of exactly when more doses of the vaccine is going to arrive you couple that with a variant you couple that with president jair bolsonaro and his continued reluctance to talk about the death toll and how serious this is in favor of talking about the economy. And Allison, unfortunately, I wish I could tell you something different, but there is not a lot of good news on the horizon here in Brazil. Uh, It appears that things are only going to get worse.
0: The crisis there, Matt, so heartbreaking. Thanks for bringing us those stories. Bitcoin is taking investors on a wild ride after surging past $61,000 to an all-time high over the weekend. It's now down heavily on rumors India is considering a total ban on cryptocurrencies. Monica has been following the crypto ups and downs, and you don't need me to tell you there are plenty of those. A question I have is how concerned should investors be about India looking to ban cryptocurrencies? I mean, what if enough countries do do something similar? What would that mean uh, for digital assets in general?
6: Yeah, obviously, Allison. if the reports about an India ban turn out to be true, that could be very worrisome for Bitcoin and other forms of digital currencies. The issue, though, I think, though, is will other nations really follow suit? I find it hard to believe that the United States would really go through and ban Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies in a serious way. You don't even get the sense that China or other emerging markets would do that as well. So I think what we might be seeing in India could be isolated. Bitcoin has been extremely volatile and every time it hits a milestone, it pulls back, but it keeps roaring higher. I mean, obviously, we've surpassed the 30, 40, 50 and now 60,000 milestones in just calendar 2021. It's a stunning rise.
0: Yeah, it's truly amazing. Now, onto another roaring company, digital payments company Stripe, which makes software that allows businesses to accept payments over the Internet. That's raised six hundred million dollars in a funding round that boosts its valuation to a whopping ninety five billion dollars. What is this company going to do with the money?
6: Yeah, uh, Stripe says that it's going to look to expand even further in Europe. This is a company that has dual headquarters in uh, the Silicon Valley and in Ireland. So I think they're looking to do more in Europe. And it's fascinating, Allison. This is a company that you know competes with the likes of PayPal and Square and digital payments. But interestingly, they pulled back on accepting Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. A couple of years ago, they said they weren't going to be doing that anymore. So... While Bitcoin continues its epic rise, you still have demand for services for traditional digital payments uh, involving actual cash and credit, not cryptocurrencies. So I think it's interesting to see how Stripe uh, is obviously a winner in the mobile and digital payment space.
0: Absolutely. OK, Paula, Monica, thanks so much for your reporting. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. Security forces killed at least 38 people in Myanmar Sunday in one of the deadliest days since a military coup on February 1st. Heaviest casualties were in an industrial suburb where several Chinese factories were set on fire. Communications networks have been disabled nationwide, causing the trial of the country's deposed leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, to be delayed. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson will hold a meeting of his crime task force to discuss protecting women from violence. Thousands of women attended a vigil in London on Saturday night for Sarah Everard, days after she was kidnapped and murdered. Officials will also investigate the heavy-handed response by police to the peaceful demonstration. Buckingham Palace has hired a law firm to investigate claims that the Duchess of Sussex bullied royal staff, accusations that were first reported in the Times. A spokesperson for the Duchess earlier described the claim as a calculated smear campaign, saying the Duchess herself had been the target of bullying. Coming up on First Move, as employers lean toward vaccinated candidates for jobs, we'll look at the thorny legal issues this raises. And farming where no one has farmed before. The technology that makes growing crops possible even in the toughest climates. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. Futures are pointing to a higher open for U.S. stocks this morning. Fresh stimulus and vaccine rollouts continue to fuel optimism about the economic recovery. In the U.S., President Biden sets out on a help is here tour, aiming to sell his $1.9 trillion relief bill to Americans, some of whom have already seen new stimulus checks hit their bank accounts. Joining me now is Mark Zandi. He's the chief economist of Moody's Analytics. Mark, great to see you. And, you know, we have talked throughout the pandemic. And now we it feels like we're kind of at the other side of this, kind of. We see that kind of light, you know, at the end of the tunnel. And there's a lot of optimism, especially in the market. You look at the S&P 500 at a record. Stock price is up 20 percent compared to where it was pre-pandemic. We've got the relief bill out there. Do you think investors and Americans are getting too ahead of themselves, though?
7: Well, there's a lot to be uh, happy about, Allison. Uh, as you point out, the pandemic feels like uh, it's starting to wind down. 20% of Americans now have at least uh, one dose of the vaccine. We've got this very, very massive fiscal support package, $1.9 That's a lot of juice. And then we've got a lot of folks that have been sheltering in place and saving and have a lot of pent-up demand. They want to go out and do things, and uh, they have the cash to do it. So you add that all up. That signals a very, very strong economy, at least over the next 12, 18 months. And, yeah, investors might be a little bit euphoric, getting a little ahead of themselves, but they have a lot of good reasons to be optimistic.
0: Now, one headwind, of course, could be inflation. And it's something that uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell has been dismissing, not concerned of inflation. We saw little hiccups in the market Over the past couple of weeks, about um, rising bond rates, an indication that the Fed may move up its timetable in tapering. Do you think the Fed is handling this right in staying the course and not looking to raise rates at least until 2023? Or how concerned are you about inflation?
7: I'm not concerned. I think uh, uh, inflation worries are really putting the cart before the horse. I mean, unemployment is still very high, over 6% nationwide. And we have a lot of uh, millions of people that have uh, stepped out of the workforce uh, not looking for work uh, and therefore not counted as unemployed so the underemployment rate is very high it's going to take us at least a couple years to get back to full employment where everyone's working and it's not until then that i think inflation becomes a a problem that's not to say there won't be price increases for certain things that we buy like gasoline prices are going to go up you know for example because oil is up For lots of uh, various reasons but broadly speaking I I don't think inflation is is an issue. Certainly not at this point and I do think the Fed is uh, conducting policy appropriately uh, uh, given that.
0: Uh, One analyst I spoke with earlier this morning said that uh, everybody's getting ready for President Biden to announce the first major tax hike since 1993, that it's needed to pay for the next part of the economic plan, and that it's increasingly clear that a tax hike is going to be part of, of what's happening here if this is the case and it looks like it could be the case, do you think uh, if, if if something like this goes ahead and passes through Congress that this could undercut growth, any growth that we would see this year?
7: No, no, not at all. I mean, I think the, the package that is now being discussed that would likely include some tax increases on uh, large corporations and on the well-to-do, that's not coming until very, very late this year, probably towards the end of the year. And the tax increases probably won't kick in until 2022, and perhaps in many cases until 2023, when presumably, hopefully, and I think uh, correctly, that the economy will be back to full employment and, and off and running. So, you know, I, I, I did, and a lot of that uh, funding, that, that those tax increases are gonna fund things like infrastructure spending, uh, spending on healthcare, education, housing, childcare, elder care, so all those things will help to support growth as well. So, no, I, and I think it's entirely appropriate that once the economy is back to full employment, that uh, whatever the president wants to do uh, in terms of spending, he's going to have to pay for with uh, tax increases. And I think that's entirely the appropriate uh, way to go here.
0: What does it quickly get to housing and real estate? Housing, the market here in the U.S., booming, but commercial real estate, apparently a different story. You know, we see lots of empty storefronts. What kind of domino effect could we see from this in the economy?
7: Yeah, yeah, you're right. Single family housing, boom times, right? Low mortgage rates, uh, work from anywhere, um, you know, all the support from the government. But the commercial real estate market is kind of on the flip side of that. It's, it's the casualty of the, of the pandemic. Uh, hotels obviously creamed by the lack of tourism and business travel. Retailers, brick and mortar retailers creamed by online e-tailers. Uh, office buildings hurt by work from anywhere dynamic. So the commercial real estate is really the part of the economy that's uh, suffered the brunt of the pandemic. And it will be a drag on economic growth. Fortunately, it's a small piece of the pie. You know, it's a big economy and CRE, commercial real estate is a small part of it. But that that is one part of the economy that will struggle uh, for the foreseeable future.
0: Very quickly, how soon will we see a recovery in the labor market?
7: Okay. Allison? It, it's going to happen uh, next month. We're going to get a jobs report in a couple of weeks for the month of March. And I'd be pretty surprised if we don't see 500,000 to a million uh, increase in employment. I think we're off and running here. And so uh, it'll become very clear that the job market is on the mend in the next few months.
0: Let's hope that those kinds of numbers that you just mentioned will become the trend. Mark Sandy, chief economist of Moody's Analytics. Great getting your perspective today. Thanks for your time. Sure thing. And the opening bell is next. There, that's tech firm Ava ringing the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange this morning. And welcome back to First Move. As you can see, once again, that was the opening bell. I'm Allison Kosick, and stocks are rising as investors continue to bet on the economy recovering strongly from the pandemic. Let's take a quick look at Tesla. Elon Musk was given a new title this morning in an official filing. He's now called CEO and techno king of Tesla. CFO Zach Kirkhorn uh, will be known as master of coin. Remember, Tesla announced last month that it had bought one and a half billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. The stock right now uh, is slightly lower. Moving on, as Europe grapples with a new wave of coronavirus infections and a slow vaccine rollout, more countries are suspending using the AstraZeneca vaccine. There are worries it could be linked to instances of blood clots, but the company is doubling down that there is no evidence of it. So let's bring in Dr. Peter Hotez. He's a co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital, and he's also the dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine, and he joins us via Skype. Peter, great to see you.
4: Nice to see you, Allison.
0: So let's start with this uh, AstraZeneca vaccine. We know that Ireland is the latest country to suspend the use of their vaccine over these concerns over blood clots. I want to hear what you think about this vaccine.
4: Yeah, well, let me say up front, Allison, this is a good vaccine. Uh, I was offered the uh, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine uh, back at the end of December. But if you had offered me the AstraZeneca-Oxford vaccine, I would have taken it. Uh, It is highly effective against the the original COVID 19 strains it's highly effective against the uk b117 variant that's now accelerating across europe Uh, it it can save your life and you know there have been 17 million doses administered of this vaccine across the european union and the united kingdom and yeah there have been a handful of cases of deep venous thrombosis and thrombocytopenia uh, and other blood clotting uh, disorders But you know what, if those people had not gotten the vaccine, it probably would have been the same rate. we can't say that with 100% certainty, but you have to remember when you're selecting a vaccine that's primarily being given to an older group, older groups have a number of uh, medical issues that happen to them on any given day. And, and it's likely that this is not related to the vaccine. That's what the company is saying. And, and, I, and I think the EMA is reviewing the data, but I really worry about suspending use of the vaccine because Covid nineteen is accelerating across Europe. This B one one seven variant's a bad actor, uh, much more transmissible than anything we've seen. Higher lethality and mortality. The deaths are going to start to mount once again in Europe, like they did last year. And this is not a time to be halting the vaccine, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, we are seeing this acceleration of Covid cases across Europe. Meantime, in the U.S., we're seeing lots of optimism, almost like a transition is about to happen. We're about to turn the corner. Are Americans being too optimistic? Uh,
4: Yes. Uh, To to give you a one-word answer, let me explain why. Um, Yeah, the number of cases are, are declining, Uh, but they're now they're starting to plateau a little bit. And once again we have that B-117 variant. We've seen what it's what it's doing in the UK in the UK and Europe right now. And we have we should believe that it's likely it's going to do the same thing, especially in certain states in the US. Florida, Georgia, Texas, almost half of the virus isolates are the B-117 variant and i worry it's going to come up and and we've only vaccinated about 20% of the us pop of the us population only 20% has gotten a single dose so we're only really just beginning now and and so we still have a ways to go and and I worry a number of governors are relaxing mask mandates prematurely. This is not the time to do it. Let's see how the B117 variant plays out. Let's see. Uh, let's get more of the U.S. population vaccinated. As that 20 percent number starts to double, I'll feel a little more comfortable. So it's everything's mm. premature. We should hold off on doing anything reckless for the next month or two.
0: Looking at the vaccines broadly, are these vaccines kind of a work in progress because of the variants? Are they going to change as far as the doses even going up to a third dose for the Pfizer and Moderna and even maybe a second for J&J?
4: I think it's quite possible that that's going to happen. And let's remember why. Um, by by adding another dose, you increase the level of virus neutralizing antibody. That's how all these uh, vaccines work and might increase the durability of protection and it might give extra layers of protection against two variants in particular that we're worried about, the South African one that's now accelerating, of course, out of South Africa into uh, the rest of Sub-Saharan Africa and the P1 variant of of Brazil, so we don't have to make that decision now. Because primarily in, in North America and Europe, it's it's the B117 variant that's accelerating, and all of the uh, vaccines seem to work really well against that one. Uh, but in time, don't be surprised if later in the year or early next year, uh, there's some decisions made about adding an extra dose.
0: Okay, and we will watch for that. Dr. Peter Hotez of Baylor College of Medicine. Great to talk with you. Thank you and another sign of the times some employers are telling workers they need to be vac- they need to be vaccinated if they want a job and a stewart takes a look at the thorny legal issues that raises for the founder of pimlico
3: plumbers it's a no brainer
0: i believe that's the way that the future's going um, no jab no job no jab no travel no jab no fun
3: he wants all current and future employees to have the vaccine and he'll add it as a clause into their job contract.
0: Going by the response we've had from our staff, um, 99.9% of them are up for it and, you know, at the moment they'll crawl across the snow
7: naked to get the vaccine.
3: I guess the big question is though, are you prepared to go to court if it comes to us?
2: According to our lawyers that we're doing nothing wrong, We're actually safeguarding people.
3: Adding a no-jab, no-job clause into a contract isn't illegal in the UK. But if an employee refuses to accept it, they could take legal action.
6: If someone doesn't want to get a vaccination and their employer insists that they do in order to undertake their role, then the basis on which they would challenge it is because perhaps they have medical reasons for not having the vaccination or they have ideological, or perhaps religious reasons for not having the vaccination. They would then argue that by putting in place a requirement that they be vaccinated and that other employees are vaccinated, the employer's policy is disproportionately affecting people like them who share that characteristic or the medical condition and that that is therefore a form of indirect discrimination.
3: The arguments may be strong where lives are at stake. Care homes were some of the hardest hit by COVID. One of the UK's leading chains, Barchester Healthcare, have set April 23rd as a deadline for staff to be vaccinated, allowing for some exemptions, including pregnancy. They say they are aware of discrimination concerns, but they say they're doing everything possible to ensure fairness, while also delivering on their duty to protect residents, patients and staff. Vaccine passports could be rolled out far more widely than the workplace in the future. You could need proof of a vaccine to go abroad, to the cinema or even to the pub. It's something the UK government is actively considering.
5: There are clearly uh, some quite complex issues, some uh, issues, some ethical issues, issues about uh, discrimination and so on. To what extent can government uh, either compel uh, or indeed uh, forbid uh, such Uh, use of such uh, certification Um, uh, I think all that needs to be gone into
3: While the government considers its position some British businesses are forming their own
0: No jabs, no jobs Anna Stewart, CNN, London Coming up farming in the desert? The smart farm that's working to improve food security in the Middle East through innovation That's next Welcome back UAE-based agricultural technology firm Pure Harvest Smart Farms, raising 60 million dollars in the latest funding round. The company is using smart greenhouses to allow agriculture to flourish in the tough Middle East environment. Joining us now CEO and co-founder of Pure Harvest, smart Farms, Sky Kurtz, great to see you.
8: Hey, great to see you as well and good morning.
0: Good morning to you. So let's walk through, you know, for those who don't know what Pure Harvest is, how does it work?
8: Uh, Yeah, so we are a a Middle East-based startup, but we design, build, and operate high-tech, climate-controlled, what we call hybrid growing systems. These systems enable us to control harsh environments and create an environment that's perfect for a plant to grow year-round, locally grown, and sustainably grown fresh produce really anywhere. And um, I heard in the lead-in, it mentioned Middle East. And while we've started in the Middle East, we see this really as a laboratory, a great place to build this uh, business, but really to develop a solution that can solve heat and humidity and make food production possible in places it previously wasn't possible. Within eight hours of Dubai, there's a massive opportunity uh, and a huge population base that, that has favorable demographics. And it's really an attractive market that needs food security, that needs water conservation economic diversification and a more sustainable food future. So we see a massive opportunity both here and anywhere, you know, really around the equator that historically depend upon food imports.
0: And speaking of opportunity, uh, I know that Pure Harvest uh, made an announcement today about raising $60 million. This is in addition to another round of fundraising that you had in April of last year of $100 million. So you're getting a lot of investment. What are you looking to do with it?
8: Uh, yes, we indeed finally are crossing that chasm to secure, you know, significant capital, and it's really first to expand around the region. We're expanding our footprint here in the United Arab Emirates. We're building a big beachhead in Saudi Arabia and a very large project in Kuwait. But we're also looking outside of the region. We're beginning; our aspirations are looking toward markets like Singapore in Southeast Asia, because really, again, our solution tackles heat and humidity and makes possible food production in places it used to not be. And so. Right now, we're producing uh, uh, tomatoes and strawberries, but we're also diversifying what we produce. We're moving into leafy greens. And we can pretty much produce anything in a Mediterranean climate corridor. So tomato, capsicum, cucumber, strawberry, aubergines, uh, microgreens, herbs, so really anything. And really, there are some companies in the US that have received a lot of interest and one of which went public recently, uh, App Harvest. We're a very similar business. However, we have much more technology invested in our climate systems and in corrosion protection to operate in markets that are really food deserts and, and really real deserts. And so we're operating in a very different environment, but we hope to take that solution and bring it to other markets that have similar dynamics and needs. It's, it's a massive global opportunity and one that we hope to not only spend the capital we've sourced to date, uh, but also to secure more capital and continue to grow around the world.
0: And just a question about uh, the announcement today and the capital that you've secured. This money is actually also through an Islamic structured finance solution. Why did you do that and and how does uh, that vehicle work?
8: Uh, Very good question. Um, So why do we did it is uh, Islamic finance is kind of an alternative capital market that's very deep here. And also where a lot of uh, yield hungry investors uh, exist for instruments that are really fixed income. Right. So this is like a bond. It's very similar to a bond. But of course, compliant with sharia law and um, why we did that was to tap that uh, deep investor base and really our partners in shawa franklin templeton investments and with uh, sancta helped us to lead this structured really venture debt security that gave us the capital we need to complete these uh, expansions that are underway so um it it allowed us to to access a new and deeper capital market but also to uh, establish a reference security this is a semi-public over-the-counter exchange-traded bond that allows us to have a reference security and to attract future capital. And really, now that we've tapped the bond markets, if you will, we can tap them again in the future. So really, this opened a lot of uh, doors for us. And we're really proud and grateful to our partners for helping support our business. But for our region, this is a massive amount of capital secured at such an early stage and even on a global scale. But fundamentally, we, we really want to start to bring our solution around the world. We've, we've really done some pretty special things out here. We call it our miracle in the desert. But to to produce when it's 51 degrees Celsius outside and 90% humidity, a perfect product year-round. And we've been in continuous production since August of 2018. It's, It's no small feat. And now we can dumb down that solution to other markets around the world, whereas others who want to bring their solutions to our market, it's much more challenging. The environment here is unprecedented.
0: Very quickly, what about plans for an IPO?
8: Yes. I mean, ultimately, we believe that the public markets would like this company. We're interested. This back market, as you know, is very hot and has taken one of our you know, analogs public in America, valuing the company at over two billion. And we have a much bigger addressable market solving a bigger need. So we really hope that people are interested in us. And it's something we will be looking forward to in the future. And we hope to talk to you again about it when it's done.
0: Well, we will certainly look to have you on uh, if that happens. Guy Kurtz, great talking with you, CEO and co-founder of Pure Harvest Smart Farms. Thank you. Thank you. Still ahead, history was made at the Grammys last night, a roundup of the big winners, plus the Oscar nominations. Next. Welcome back, I'm Allison Kosick, and it was a star-studded night at this year's Grammy Awards. It was a little different because of the pandemic, but still featured a few live performances, acceptance speeches, and some history being made. Four women won the top four awards Sunday night. And on top of that, Beyonce broke the record for all-time wins by a female artist and by any singer, male or female, with 28 Grammys. Dua Lipa took the award for Best Pop Vocal Album for Future Nostalgia. She also performed on the show singing her hit, Levitating. The Daily Show's Trevor Noah hosted the event, which put a big emphasis on diversity and race. One of the highlights was her winning Song of the Year for I Can't Breathe.
4: And the Grammy goes to I Can't Breathe, her.
1: We are the change that we wish to see. And, you know, that that. That fight that we had in us the summer of 2020, keep that same energy. Thank you.
0: And from the biggest night in music to the biggest award show of the ball, the Oscars. Nominations were announced in the past hour by actress Priyanka Chopra and her husband, Nick Jonas. This year's ceremony has been delayed until April because of the pandemic. But we all want to know what are the big films to look out for let's bring in brian stelter he's here in new york with more so brian what should we look out for because most theaters were closed most of the big blockbusters were weren't released so this isn't about the box office this is about streaming right
9: yeah this is even more about specialty films and the streaming wars netflix with its best uh uh, oscar season yet uh, coming away with, with, with dozens of nominations for many different films. Uh, And what we're gonna see at the Oscars, when the ceremony takes place, when the winners are named, uh, is is all of those streaming platforms competing and Netflix leading the charge, as it is, of course, on Wall Street and as it is in the industry. Uh, Biggest nomination uh, this morning is for uh, Mank. Mank is a film about the making of Citizen Kane. The Academy, the voters always love movies that are about movies, and this is one of those years. Mank taking uh, 10 nominations uh, and leading the pack. Uh, there are a number of films with six nominations each, uh, including um, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, The Trial of Chicago 7, and Crip Camp. And, and, those, and it's, it's, you know, these are, in some cases, like Crip Camp, a Netflix documentary uh, produced by the Obamas, and so it has all the kind of prestige that Academy voters are looking for.
0: I know the Academy had announced that uh, there were efforts to improve inclusion, not just in their ranks, but in the Oscars themselves, adding a diversity requirement for eligibility. Is that for these awards?
9: Yeah, we, what we are seeing is this gradual rollout of these eligibility uh, uh, you know, standards. And we are seeing progress from a couple of years ago when the hashtag Oscars so white was embarrassing to Hollywood and there were vows for change. We are really seeing progress, although not as quickly as many would like. Uh, This is a record year for the number of women nominated for Academy Awards, two female directors nominated in the category that oftentimes is entirely male directors. That's been another source of embarrassment for Hollywood. And we are starting to see these changes. Uh, I think in some ways, these Academy Awards are gonna be rather predictable. Chadwick Boseman, for example, nominated uh, for actor. He passed away last year. Uh, There's a real rallying around uh, Bozeman and his family is likely to get get that award. Some of these are predictable. Uh, Nomadland, a likely contender. Uh, Netflix, like I said, leading the pack. Um, But it is always interesting to see how the Oscars are reflecting the evolution of Hollywood. These streaming companies, these other studios, uh, do not want to be perceived as uh, stuck in the past, behind the times. They don't ever want to hear that Oscars so white hashtag ever again. And, And from the nominations today, we are seeing progress.
0: How soon will we see some blockbusters released, Brian, so we could, uh, not that I don't enjoy the streaming movies, but.
9: Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the interesting dynamic about this. I was thinking about some of the films, you know, that, that, were, that were nominated this morning. I mentioned Nomad Land, for example, which is playing in theaters here in New York. Now the theaters have reopened. And yet I was doing the calculation in my head. Do I want to go spend 15 bucks and see it in a theater or do I just want to watch it on Hulu? Now people have those choices. And in some ways it p- flips the Oscars on their head. Now, instead of the Oscars, the nominations being a sense of, oh, what movies should you go out to the theater and see? Now it's, hey, what should you go stream before awards night? But to answer your question, Memorial Day, June, July, that is when these studios are really banking on people going back to theaters. And I think there's going to be a huge surge of interest to get to theaters to see those blockbusters this summer.
0: Yeah, we will see if everybody heads back to the theaters. All right, Brian Stelter, great talking with you.
9: Thanks. Thanks.
0: Tomorrow, CNN is partnering with young people worldwide for a student-led day of action against modern-day slavery. This year, we're asking young people to make a pledge to take specific actions to help end slavery. Join CNN on Tuesday for My Freedom Day. Sign the pledge and nominate your friends to do the same. Share your pledge on social media using the hashtag MyFreedomDay. All right. Stay safe. I'm Alison Kosick with filling in for Julia Chatterley for First Move. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. I'll see you soon.
10: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level.